instead of giving a verse-by-verse exposition, which would be fine, I thought I would instead paint a picture for you of what Paul is trying to communicate in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. All of 1 and all of 2 encapsulated in a big picture. And so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, let me say again that I think it's a shame that we're doing this in such a quick time. Uh, maybe someday we can spend a year in Colossians. In fact, I will say this to you, that we can spend a year in Colossians chapter 1, a year, and we will not have exhausted it. It is that profound. It is that robust. It is that rich. So, this is what I'm going to do. Give you a portrait of what Paul is saying in Colossians 1 and 2. It is the year 57 A.D. and Paul Tarsus is leaving the city of Ephesus. A riot just broke out and he's leaving the city. He was there for three years and he has raised up a beautiful church in Ephesus and he's leaving it behind. While this is happening, there is a young man who is raising up a church in an obscure village about a hundred miles east. The young man's name is Epaphras and the village is called Colossae. This young man has also raised up a church in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Four years goes by and Paul of Tarsus is now a prisoner on house arrest in Rome, Italy. And this young man, Epaphras, travels to Rome to visit Paul. And what he does when he visits Paul is he tells him what's happening in the church at Colossae. He gives him a report. And what Paul does in response is that he writes a letter to the church in Colossae. And this letter is one of the most sublime unveilings, one of the highest revelations of Jesus Christ that's ever been penned in history. What Paul is doing in this letter is he's gambling. He's throwing dice. And here is what he's gambling. He's gambling against religion. He's gambling against guilt. And let me just hit pause here and tell you this. That the tool of guilt is the number one instrument of the modern preacher. Preachers use guilt to try to get God's people to do what they think they should do. And brothers and sisters, that is a cheap tool to pick up. And uh, I go on record saying that I refuse to pick that tool up. I have never picked that tool up, to my knowledge. If someone has gotten under conviction because of anything I said, it's because I've brought Christ. I will not pick up the tool of guilt. Well, anyway, he bet against rules. He bet against regulations. He bet against laws. He bet against everything that religion offers and everything that, quite honestly, modern Christianity today engages in. 
here's what his gamble was. He gambled that if he could unveil and reveal and present the Lord Jesus Christ in reality, that that unveiling would replace the need of any rules, any regulations, any laws. It would wipe off the table all of the distractions that was plaguing that group. He bet on Jesus Christ. He bet that Christ minus everything and Christ plus nothing was enough, was sufficient to address their need. And so, as you read the letter, here's what you hear him saying. He says that, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing the whole letter by this one statement, that the fullness of Christ is the sufficiency of human beings. That Christ is enough. That Christ is all-sufficient. And he effectively says that if you lay hold of Christ and make Him the center of your life, you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. If you lay hold of Christ and make Him the center of your life, you will bear fruit. If you will lay hold of Christ and make Him the center of your life, you will be given wisdom and understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you lay hold of Christ and make Him the center of your life, you will walk worthy of the Lord and be pleasing in His sight. If you lay hold of Christ and make Him the center of your life, you will experience His endurance, His steadfastness, His patience, His strength. If you will lay hold and be absorbed with Christ, you will receive His joy and you will be thankful. Now, all those terms come out of Colossians 1. And what he does in the first chapter is he pulls back the curtain. He shows us a Christ that is mind-boggling. He shows us a Christ who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the Father from before the world began. He shows us a Christ who is the visible image of the invisible God. That if you look at Jesus of Nazareth, you see God, period. He shows us a Christ who is redemption and is forgiveness. Not that He gives us redemption and forgiveness. He does do that. But you know, when you talk about redemption and forgiveness and salvation as a thing, the compass points to you. But He is redemption and He is forgiveness and He is salvation. The compass points to Him. He shows us a Christ who has yanked us out of the kingdom of darkness through the womb of death wherein we woke up in the kingdom of light in the kingdom of a son who is loved very much. He shows us a Christ who created all things visible and invisible. He shows us a Christ, a Christ of creation, a Christ of the universe, a Christ of the cosmos, whereby all things, all things, whether we see them or not, were created by Him, through Him, to Him, and for Him. He shows us a Christ who's even beyond that. He takes us beyond the stratosphere 
And what Paul does in this first chapter is he takes us before time, above time, outside of time. He gives us a view of the universe that would make the head of Albert Einstein spin and would give Stephen Hawking a conniption or make him faint. He shows us a Christ who is before all things, who is before time, who is before space. And he shows us a Christ in whom all of creation holds together. See, it is because creation is in Christ that the planets don't move off their orbit or the earth doesn't move off its axis. All things are held together in Christ. This is the kind of Lord he shows us. He shows us a Christ in whom the church exists. A Christ who is the firstborn, not only of creation, but the firstborn of the dead. He shows us a Christ who is the first person who has passed through death, triumphed over it, and has come out on the other side, resurrected, who has conquered death. He also, beyond that, shows us a Christ who has reconciled the entire creation to himself. You see... The Creator, this Christ who created everything, watched His creation fall, watched it turn into an enemy, and then the same Christ entered into the creation to reconcile all of it back to Himself. And how did He do that? Here's how He did it. There was a stake outside the city of Jerusalem in which blood was spilled. There was a Jewish carpenter who was slaughtered on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And by that slaughtering, by that spilling of blood, he reconciled every dark power, every dark thing, every fallen thing, whether on earth or in heaven. He reconciled it to himself by his blood on that cross. And what's even more arresting than that is He reconciled you and me there also. And what's even more mind-boggling than that is because of that blood, because of that cross, because of that death, that horrendous death, now God the Father sees you and me holy, blameless, without reproach, without accusation. Praise the Lord. He reconciled an entire universe. He reconciled the entire cosmos. He who created everything entered into creation and reconciled everything back to Him after He watched it fall. And then, even beyond that, He shows us the Father. And the Father, the Almighty, the God of creation, says, My greatest pleasure was that all of me would dwell in my Son. The greatest pleasure of God the Father was to dwell, to live in, to reside in His Son. That all of God, all of who God is, would come and take up residence in the Son. The fullness of God drained out into the Son. 
he was so impressed with his son that he said, I want to live there. I want to live out my eternal living in my son. It's a wonderful, wonderful Christ for God the Father to want to live in him. And the Holy Spirit too. And then there's a mystery. And Paul says all these things about this Christ to bring out this mystery. And what's really mind-boggling about this is that the mystery is to be unveiled to these ex-heathen, ex-pagan Gentiles living in this obscure village in Colossae. They were privileged to hear what this mystery was, this secret that God had hidden in Himself from ages past. A mystery, hidden God from before time. And here was the mystery that this Christ that Paul just spoke about who was before the beginning who created all things who is the firstborn of creation is the firstborn from the dead who is the head of all principality and power who is the head of the church the body of Christ in whom all the fullness of God dwells This Christ who reconciled this fallen universe in His own body when He died that horrible death at Calvary. This Christ in whom the Father and the Spirit lives forever. The mystery was that the fullness of this Christ would now dwell in human beings. The riches of the glory of this one who Paul has been unveiling would now live, dwell, take up residence in you. In you. Christ in you. This one. This one that he has just uncorked. In all of his glory, in all of his fullness. That the one who has been given the title deed to the universe, dwells in these Colossian Christians. These new Colossian Christians. They weren't Christians for all that long. And that the Father, this Father who dwelt in the Son, wished for the Son to now dwell in them. But that's not all. It gets even better than that. So just hit pause and think about it. The God of the universe, the God who created everything, the God in whom all things hold together, lives inside of you. The Trinity is inside of you. He lives in you. That's where He's making His home. It was His good pleasure to dwell in you with all of His fullness. The billowing glory of eternal deity has come to live in you. Christ in you. And Paul says, this is the will of God. This is the word of God. And God has called me to be a steward of the mystery. To unveil it to these heathen pagan Gentiles. To tell them that Christ, with all of His glory and all of His riches, has come to dwell in them. Christ and all of His fullness dwells in you. But that's not all. You and I can live by this Christ who lives in us. We can live by His life. 
we can live by Him. Just as the Son lived by the Father, He lived by the Father's life, now we can live by this Christ. Because He says in Colossians chapter 3, we didn't get there yet, but I'm just going to give you a little preview, Christ our life. And that's what the church is. That's what the ecclesia is. It's a group of people who are learning how to live by the fullness of Christ together. That's the journey we're on. We are going to get in touch with the reality that He lives in us. And we can live by Him. Where He can live out His life through us. And it's a corporate thing and it's an individual thing. Christ is in you and Christ is in us. Just think of it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that refers to the very fact that He is glory and that the hope is the future. That the fact that He lives in us now is the guarantee that we will be glorified and resemble Him in His likeness and emit the full glory of God. But the fullness of the glory is inside of us now. And so think of it this way. Brother Rodrigo, if we split you open, there would be so much glory in you that it would blind all of us. And it would light this little house up to where people could see it for miles. The Trinity is inside you, brother. Amen. The Godhead lives in you. That's the mystery. That this one who Paul so beautifully paints as being before and outside, who created the creations in him, all of these wonderful things, the reconciler, the redeemer, the ransomer, who is our salvation, who is the head of the church and of all principality and power, he lives in us. And we can live by him. So, this is what we're going to be doing. This is the journey we're on. And brothers and sisters, everything begins here and everything ends here. Christ in you, that's the will of God. That's the word of God. Paul was a steward of the mystery. He was a minister who was called to proclaim this message. Where then shall you find knowledge? Embrace Him, Christ, who is the true gnosis. He is the true knowledge. Where then will you find wisdom and understanding? Embrace Him who is wisdom. Where then will you find truth? Where then will you seek truth? Embrace Him. Explore Him. Lay hold of Him whose name is truth. He is truth. And Paul goes into Colossians 2 and he he breaks it up into two sections. After he's revealed the mystery of Christ in us, He says, now if somebody comes along and says, you need to be circumcised, be circumcised. He talks to you about circumcision. Then the answer is, I have already been circumcised in Christ. That's what my baptism was for. I was baptized in Christ and I have been circumcised. And then he says, if someone comes along and says that you need to keep the Sabbath day and you need to keep new moons and holy days the answer is Christ is my Sabbath He is my rest Christ is my new moon and Christ is my holy day and if someone comes to you and says that you need to keep the law and Paul says when Christ was crucified 
He nailed to the cross the written code that was against us. And He put to death the law. But not only that, you also died with Christ. But not only that, you were risen again with Him. And now the law has changed its form. It's no longer a written code to condemn you. It's now a person who lives inside you. He is the law. He's a living person. He lives in you by the Spirit. So the one who says, follow the law, turn a deaf ear to him. Christ is my living law. And not only that, but he disarmed principalities and powers. He triumphed over all demonic powers. And to the person who comes and says, you need to pursue angelic visitations. But if you really want the fullness of God, you need to pursue angels and you will have angelic visitations. Then Paul says, Jesus Christ is the head of all principality and power. And He's superior to all angels. And the fullness of God has been given to me in Him. And He lives in me. And all of His fullness and His glory and the riches of His glory are in me. I don't need to seek angels. And to the one who would say to you, you must be holy. You must be righteous. Therefore, do not touch this. And do not taste that. And do not handle this. And do this with your body. He says... Give him atomic knee drop. No, he didn't say that. He says, Turn a deaf ear because Christ is your holiness and Christ is your righteousness and Christ is your purity. And to the person who would try to exhort you to follow empty philosophy and the traditions of man, don't pay attention to him because those things will distract you from this living Lord, the Christ who lives in you. All you need is Christ. And you are full and complete in Christ. And all of His fullness is in you. Brothers and sisters, He is enough. You don't need anything else. He is all sufficient. He's enough. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, this is what he says. This revelation of this Lord, the Lord of the creation, the Lord of the universe, the one who holds the title deed to the universe, who dwells in you, this revelation will produce the following things. Number one, it will encourage your hearts. And brothers and sisters, I hope that your heart is encouraged right now as I'm sharing with you Paul's revelation of Jesus Christ in Colossians. Your heart should be encouraged. Because what I'm telling you is not a fairy tale. It is the truth. I am speaking the truth to you in love. Ever read that in the New Testament? This is the truth. And I'm speaking it to you in love. And the second fruit of this revelation, if you embrace it, is that your hearts will be knit together in love. This is the glue that draws you together. It's Christ. It's laying hold of Him. Embracing Him. Taking Him as your fullness. Getting to know Him. Pursuing Him. It causes your hearts to be knitted together in love. And you know what else it will do? It will bear fruit in your life. And that fruit is love. That's what fruit is. Fruit is Christ. And Christ is love. And it also will... It will bring you into the true wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom and knowledge is Christ, and it is in Christ. 
And then he, he has this to say. And here's where I'm going to end. He says, As you have received this Christ that I've just presented to you in Colossians chapter 1, as you've received this Christ, now you have graduated to go on to other things. <laughs> right? And that's the Christian mindset. No, he says, as you have received this incredible, marvelous, matchless, limitless, glorious, expansive Christ, as you have received Him, now walk in Him. And then he says, and be rooted and grounded, rooted and built on him. The greatest picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was the land of Canaan. And God's people walked in the land after they received the land. They walked in the land and they were rooted in the land. They sunk their roots deep in the land and then they built something on the land and what did they build? The house of the living God. And so Paul is saying, here is the real land. All sufficient. All fullness. This land, this Christ, now lives in you, but you live in Him. And so as you have received Christ, the real land, now begin to walk in Him. Walk in the real land. And be rooted in Him. Sink your roots deep in Him. And... If you're going to build anything, build it on Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the message of Colossians 1 and 2. And this is where we start, and this is where we end. Our journey is to explore, to embrace, to lay hold of all the wealth, all the fullness, all the riches all the glory that is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And we'll let the curtain close right there.